0: Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis.
1: Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 694 with Constant Lock. Constant shares how to make your voice heard, so you'll learn, one, why we pay attention to some people more than others, two, the elements of an influential voice, And three, the simple secret to becoming more likable. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to as we reference, drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP694 and check out some of the other goodies we've got at com from the 10 days to winning at work, free email course to email summaries, the gold nuggets of each guest and all kinds of other goodies at com. Now here's Conson's story. Professor Conson Locke joined the London School of Economics in 2008 where she teaches leadership, organizational behavior and negotiation and decision making. She's over 30 years experience as an educator, coach and consultant working across the world. Prior to entering academia, she served as regional training and development manager for the Boston Consulting Group, where she is responsible for the learning and development of consulting staff in 10 offices across Asia Pacific. She's got her doctorate and MSc in business administration, organizational behavior from the University of California, Berkeley, and a BA in sociology from Harvard, where she graduated with honors. Her book, Making Your Voice Heard, uses the research on power to influence, help people speak up to those who have more power than they do. Big thanks to Collinson for sharing her wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free now. Here's Conson. Conson, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me, Pete. Oh, well, my pleasure. I am excited to talk about how we can go about making our voices heard. But first, I think we need to hear just a bit about you bungee jumping in Thailand.
2: (laughs) Well, bungee jumping in Thailand, that was it was in my early thirties and I was going through an early midlife crisis and I didn't know what to do with myself. And I thought, I'm just going to go away on vacation by myself. And, you know, in Asia, at least at the time, it was quite safe for a woman traveling alone. So I went to Thailand and I thought, oh, look, there's a bungee jumping place that's over a lake. And I had always wanted to bungee jump and I thought it's over water. So it's probably safe, right? It was only afterwards that I found out if you hit water at such high speed, it's like hitting the ground. And so I went, I got this tuk-tuk driver, and tuk-tuk is like the local taxi. He didn't speak any English, and I pointed out where I wanted to go, so he took me there. He had never seen bungee jumping before. So he was the only person there that was watching me, essentially, except for the staff. So I stand up there, and the thing about bungee jumping, you see the photos, it looks like people are flying you do not fly. You drop like a rock. So I stepped off the platform thinking, oh, I'm going to fly like a bird. And I just went boom, straight down screaming. So afterwards, afterwards, I go back to the tuk-tuk and the driver's staring at me like, oh my God, I cannot believe what you just did. And he's like tapping his chest going boom, 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 boom. Like, you know, (laughs) your heart must be going crazy. (laughs) And I said, yes. And so he like bought me a bottle of water.
1: Oh, what a guy. Which,
2: I mean, he makes hardly <laughs> any money, but he bought me a bottle of water because he felt so bad for me. That was me bungee jumping in Thailand.
1: Oh, wow. Boom, 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 question mark. I, I bet uh, that probably plays in your head from time to time. That's unforgettable. <laughs> well, so, so I take it uh, it wasn't something you're going to do again? No, no. It was one of those <laughs> things I wanted to try
2: once, but that's, that's it.
1: Okay. There we have it. Well, I've been skydiving and hang gliding, and I loved it. But bungee jumping just feels like like my stomach would go, wow just by, from the jolts. Yes. And I, I don't know if I would do so well. Yeah. Okay. Well, so I'm glad we covered that. That's important. And now it's also important. <laughs> your book, Making Your Voice Heard, <laughs> that is something, boy, our listeners have asked for before. Can you tell us what's the core thesis here?
2: So... This is all about what I call upward influence. How do you influence people who have as much or more power than you do? And this is something that has always interested me. And I I teach leadership at the LSE. So I've been teaching leadership for about 13 years now. And what I noticed in a lot of leadership courses, the focus is very much on how do the leaders influence their team? You know, but come on, if you're the boss, how hard is it to make your team do what you want them to do? Like, okay, you've got to engage them and all that, but still, what's really important and what I've, I struggled with for the 16 years before I entered academia was how do I influence my boss or how do I influence the client or how do I influence, you know, these, the, the people who have more power than me, the, the government official or whoever it is that I'm trying to convince, that's the challenging thing. And that's what the book is focused on.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I'm looking forward to digging into the particular details, but maybe could you start us off by sharing with us a a particularly surprising and counterintuitive discovery you've made while doing this research?
2: I suppose what I find interesting about it is that it's possible. What I mean is, I've always been a very shy, introverted person. And growing up, I'm Chinese American, and growing up, My parents were very traditional Chinese. I always grew up with this idea that hierarchy is hierarchy, and you're not supposed to argue with your boss. Like, you don't disagree with your boss. That's crazy. And why would your boss change his or her mind because of what you say? I mean, they are the boss. And so to me, I guess it's not counterintuitive, but it was something that was surprising for me, is that actually... This is something your boss wants you to do in a lot of cases, like they want to hear your voice. They want to get your opinion. And if you think that something's going wrong and you can fix it, they want to know that. So it's one of those things that once I realized it's beneficial for the organization, oftentimes the people in charge want to hear your voice, then that that kind of changed the way I looked at it.
1: Mm hmm. Well, yes, I I concur as someone who has been both the boss and the follower as the boss. It is genuinely helpful when I say something and someone tells me not necessarily that's the stupidest idea ever. We are so wrong, but rather, hmm, do you think that that's the best course of action? Give it X, Y, Z. And I go, oh, shoot. Yeah, you're right. Sorry. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And and then like, it'd be disastrous if we went ahead and charged ahead with the thing I originally thought of. So, Mm -hmm. so thank you. Yep, collaborator for bringing that to my attention. Okay. Well, so then I want to dig into the how-to of that, but maybe zooming out, can you tell us fundamentally what makes some people more influential than others? And, And I've had listeners say something like, hey, sometimes I'll be in a meeting and I'll say something and then someone else, and it was sort of like, eh, Kind of barely acknowledged, and someone else will say just about exactly the same thing, and they'll say, "Oh yeah," and there's like enthusiasm and movement, and like, what Mm -hmm. the heck is going on here? And and it feels it feels horrible. You feel so small, you Mm -hmm. know, when that happens. But what are some drivers behind that? What makes someone more influential than someone else?
2: So sometimes it's pure bias. Sometimes there is maybe the person who is being paid attention to is maybe physically bigger or is taller or has been around longer or is more senior. You know, so these are things you don't necessarily have control over. And there are biases towards listening to those people more. But what you can do to be that person that people listen to is there's reputation and then there is delivery style. And of course, there's content. Obviously, but we're talking about two people presenting the same amount of content. So who gets listened to more? Assuming assuming all other things are equal, reputation is what's called basis of power. So basis of power are where you get your power from. And if you're the boss, you get your power from things like you have access to rewards and punishments. But if you're not the boss, you get your power from two things. One is called expert power, which is people respect you for your expertise. And the other is called referent power, which is people like you. But this takes time. You have to build it over time. And if you've built that respect, if people respect you and they go, oh, okay, well, I, I've worked with Constant for a long time. And when she says something, I know that it's worth listening to or I've worked with constant a long time and I really like working with her. So I think I I will listen to her. That, that is something that can really feed into that. So that's the reputation. But the other thing is the delivery style and delivery style is everything from your body language. We think a lot about body language, but actually I think what's even more important than body language is the voice. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: What are we doing with our voice? Are we emphasizing? Are we being monotone? Are we using pauses? And that's something that we can practice. But also it's delivery is like it's being pithy. It's like getting to the point. It's catching people's attention. So it's that combination of how do you sound? How do you look? And what are you saying?
1: Okay. Well, so then let's talk about both the, the long-term game and the short-term game. Let's hear first. For, let's do quick hits the do's and don'ts of sort of like the voice and the presentation and the delivery style, because that, that's something we could do immediately and, and hopefully see some some impact. So what are the top things that give us an influence boost versus an influence ding?
2: Okay. So when it comes to delivery style, think of how you look and how you sound. And I'm I'm going to assume that what you're saying is the same regardless. So So let's focus on how you look and how you sound. How you look, if you're online, you need to pay attention to lighting. If you're not online, then obviously you don't have to worry about that. You're all in the same room anyway. If you're online, you also need to pay attention to sound quality. So, getting a good headset Mm -hmm. so people can hear you. The other things about how you look is think about your clothing, your hairstyle. Are you standing up straight? Are you slouched? Or are you? taking up space. So the good things are, if you're standing up or sitting up straight, you're taking up some space, which means you're not shrinking. You're not kind of hiding, but you're you're really owning that space. You're using eye contact while speaking because that's what makes people that's what makes you come across as confident and you're using a tone of voice that's confident and natural, a pace that's natural,
1: and you're willing to pause. Okay. Well, could you maybe give us a verbal demonstration then uh, associated with what is a nice influential voice sound like versus a not so influential voice? Sure.
2: So if I'm trying to tell you about what makes me influential, yeah, and I'm talking and I'm just kind of using a lot of filler words. I'm just not It's not very engaging. And after a while, you kind of tune out. Mm -hmm. Instead, if you're short, sharp, sweet, you deliver the information, look confident, sound confident, and deliver your information in sharp bites. Okay, I've got Mm -hmm. a confident tone of voice. I'm pausing in between each point. And sometimes I'll change my tone if I'm emphasizing something, or maybe I'll say something a bit softer if I want to get your attention. That's using your voice to its potential. And it's something you can practice. Everyone can practice at home. You record yourself on your phone, you play it back.
1: Yeah, that's great. So it's so funny. (laughs) In the first one, my, my attention started drifting just within a couple seconds. <laughs> yeah. And this is kind of my job is to pay attention to everything you're saying and think about how we're going to package and present it. Exactly. So so I thought that was pretty funny. And then there may very well have been some, some listeners, I think, who'd noticed the same thing or maybe even skipped ahead. Like, oh, I'm, I'm bored for right now. Let's let's get more. Yeah. So that is that's potent there. And then... Part of it is practicing and recording yourself so you can just hear and see the difference for yourself. And any other tips in terms of doing the preparation so that that is possible?
2: You know who I think one of my best coaches has been, and he hasn't meant to be my coach? My husband, who I have been married to for about 20 years now. He's a very impatient person. Mm -hmm. And when I first started dating him, I would tell him stories about what happened to me at work and I'd go on and on and on. And his, he would just drift off like he was not listening anymore. So over the years, I learned to be very much to the point. I would within like, I think a great way of practicing is to find a friend or a family member who you know is pretty impatient and practice telling them a story. If you can keep their attention, you're getting to the
1: point. Okay. I like it. Okay. So that's the vocal stuff. You mentioned clothing and maybe this is common sense, but maybe perhaps not common practice. What are the do's and don'ts when it comes to clothing?
2: With clothing, you have to pay attention to the culture of the organization you're in. Don't make assumptions. I had a student who went for an interview at an advertising company and she wore a very conservative dark blue suit. And she, she noticed that everyone around her was wearing colorful, funky kind of creative clothing. She did not get the job. Mm -hmm. So don't make assumptions about what's the appropriate clothing or not. Really, you need to observe the culture around you and adopt what is best in that environment.
1: And, you know, what I think I noticed on my own clothing game, which is, which is mediocre. I'm wearing a t-shirt right now, but you're cool with it. Thanks, (laughs) Kansa. Is that uh, just sort of little things in terms of like, oh, there's a wrinkle I didn't notice before, but oh, now I see it and it's there. Or, oh, there's a little bit of a spot of, I don't know if it was, I don't know, maybe a little, little bit of grease or oil or ketchup that like got wiped up and had just a, a smidge of that sort of oil residue <laughs> left behind. So it's like it's a wet spot, but it's there for, I guess, the day. That's what I find with clothing is those little things. and And, and I don't know, sometimes I wonder... How much do people care? But I think I'm coming around to thinking that even if it's not fully in their conscious purview, it's sending a little bit of a signal that's impeding influence. W- would you agree with that? Or what do you think about those little clothing things?
2: I think with clothing, it's the impression that you make. Mm-hmm. So if there's a little stain and you hardly notice it, I doubt anyone else is going to notice it, you know, unless you point it out to them, which I would suggest you don't do.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But otherwise, it's, it's about the general impression. And so as long as, in terms of the general impression, if you're making the impression that you want to make, sometimes you want to make a more casual impression. Sometimes you want to make a more formal impression. And so it's all about that kind of broad impression that you're making. And that's what you should be aiming for. I, I wouldn't worry too much about the little wrinkles or the stains.
1: Okay, well, well, thanks for that help there. I think fit also can factor into things in terms of if it's a little too tight, a little too baggy it looks quite different than when it's like sharp, like, oh yeah, that fits you just right. You just look good uh, no matter the context. Okay. So clothing, we're not going to say much more about that. When it comes to that expertise and the reputation, sort of the long game, how do you recommend we develop that? Well,
2: so developing expert power, the best, the most obvious way to do it is just to be really good at what you do, be really good at your job, but also to make sure people know that you're good at your job. So, for example, when I first started working at LSE, I got a lot of good evaluations as a teacher, but not everyone knows what evaluations everyone else is getting. But the head of my group was so impressed with my teaching scores that she actually had this little, at one of the staff meetings, she gave me a little award for getting like the best teaching evaluations that she's ever seen. And so that was great. Because I didn't have to brag on my own behalf, which never looks good. She was the one who kind of let people know what I was doing. And that helped me gain expert power. So then my colleagues were like, oh, wow, I didn't know that Conson was good at that. So it's being really good at what you do, but also making sure, finding a way to let people know that, that's, that you're good at it. If you want to build expert power with a particular person, it can really help if you can help them solve a problem that they're working on that they're struggling with. Because then you're helping them solve this problem and they'll see you, they'll be grateful. And they'll also be like, oh, you're pretty smart. So those are the ways of building expert power.
1: And then when well, I'm intrigued by your, your fantastic evaluations, and, and there may be particular pedagogical things that are not within the scope here, but is there anything you do in the classroom you think that is particularly powerful when it comes to being liked? and influential by your students?
2: I think that in terms of the evaluations that I've received, there are two things that students usually say. One is they can tell that I I love what I teach, like I really care about this. But it's not just that I'm so fascinated about the topic that I teach, it's that I care about helping them become better leaders. So the way, when I teach, it's not me indulging myself. When I teach, it's about helping my students become better at leadership, at influence, at doing better in their careers. And they can tell that. They can tell that I want to help them. So that, that really engages them. The other thing is I tell lots of stories, and they love the stories. So I tell stories, you know, about my kids, about my husband, about, I mean, I guess I've already mentioned something about my husband today. And Mm -hmm. it's just, I bring all of my personal experiences into it. And they think that's very engaging.
1: Yeah, certainly. Okay. Well, so then when it comes to the workplace, well, hey, that's been a common theme we've seen in terms of just caring Uh, just Mm -hmm. is huge in terms of people pick up on it. They want to reciprocate. You're motivated. You get more creative ideas. You look out for their, their good. And so all kinds of great things happen just by caring and caring can be rarer in some environments. So it really is a a distinguisher. So what else do you recommend folks do to bolster their their likability at work?
2: So in terms of likability, so expertise is one thing, and we've already talked about that. Likeability is different in that it's really about getting to know people as people, not as work colleagues. It's really having that curiosity in a person. It's wanting to connect with people just for the sake of connecting. So for example, I don't know, if, if you've got someone who works at the front desk and you're walking past the front desk to go to the stationery cupboard, pause at the front desk, chat with them, get to know them, You know, at least get to know their name and who they are. And it's that connecting with colleagues chatting with people at the coffee machine. I mean, I know that doesn't happen so much now with the pandemic and everything, but really, you know, I had a colleague just today who was helping me with something and she was so amazingly helpful. I said to her, I'm going to take you out to dinner in return. And so it's that taking the time to get to know people and appreciate people that makes you likable.
1: All right. Thank you. Well, you also write a bit about energy and body cues. Yes. Can you share with us a little bit about what are these? How do we identify them and, and use them to our advantage?
2: So when it comes to body cues, I think most of what I think it's important to focus on is what you are communicating to other people, because that's what you have control over. So, and what I think is most important when you're trying to be influential is communicating confidence. And so confidence, communicating confidence is everything you learn in presentation skills training, stand up straight, take up space, use eye contact, sound confident, all of those things. When we're trying to interpret other people's body cues, we have to be very careful because it's really easy to misinterpret. So one thing I usually warn people about is narcissists are great at looking confident Hmm. and we confuse confidence with competence. And obviously it's not the same thing. Yeah. If someone looks confident, we think that they're pretty competent. The next time you are interviewing someone or listening to someone and you think, wow, they really know what they're talking about. Just question yourself a little bit. What am I basing this on? Am I basing this on the fact that they sound really confident or am I actually basing this on something concrete? And what I usually, like, if you're interviewing someone, you you know, how do you protect yourself against a narcissist? There are a couple of things you can do. One is you ask for specific examples of what they've accomplished. Because once you get the examples, then you can hear how they talk about the examples. Do they talk about it as if they did everything themselves? Or do they give other people credit? And the other thing is you ask other people, how they were treated by this person, especially the receptionist or the junior people, because the narcissists tend to talk down to people who they don't think are very important. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess the, the bottom line is don't read too much into other people's body cues. And in fact, try to get additional data to make sure that what you're interpreting
1: is accurate. Yes, that sounds dead on. And then I find it's an interesting blend. It, <laughs> I was chatting with my buddy Connor about this. Not Connie, not Conson, Connor. <laughs> and he said, I, I think I was chatting, it was it was a speech therapist. I, w- I was taking my son to the speech therapist. And she said, Yeah, his pronunciation on words is pretty good, but I mean when it gets stretched out to a whole sentence, it does get a little bit harder to understand. And I thought, you know, I've always thought it was the word was pronounced pronunciation. But then you're the speech therapist, so I would imagine pronunciation is your whole game. So if you say it's pronunciation, <laughs> then I'm inclined to think maybe it is. And I think it's so fascinating. And, and maybe this is agreeableness, the personality trait that I'm, that I'm capturing here. But it's like, there are some folks who seem, uh, and she was very sweet, but, but there are some folks who seem very confident and positive that their way, their thoughts are, are correct. Mm-hmm. And I, who, who have, I, I guess, a decent bit of humility and agreeableness or whatever the construct is, Mm-hmm. when I receive that, I go, oh, okay, well, I, I kind of thought it was this, or hmm, that doesn't make much sense to me, given ABC in my own experience. But I mean, you really seem to think. And so so it, it's tricky. Like, And often, you know, that's the conversation I have with friends is like, wait, am I crazy? Or what's the deal here? And so, hey, help us, <laughs> if you can help us decode that, like, how much stock should we put in the confidence of another person relative to our own Knowledge, data, expertise, and and it's probably not a one size fits all answer. I put you on the spot, but uh, how do you think about that that dance?
2: The way I think about it would be trying to break down: Do I feel like this person is confident in what they're saying because of the way they are saying it, or are they actually putting some data and some logic and some actual concrete support behind what they're saying?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Because if they're if they're giving me some Concrete support, okay, maybe I'll be a bit more confident in what they're saying. If it's simply they're delivering it with confidence, no, don't be fooled by that.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: I'm just going to use my husband as an example again. When my children, my my daughters are now teenagers, but I remember when they were younger, when they were like eight and 10 years old, and my husband is the full-time parent. And one time I heard one of my daughters asking her father, about a history question. And we live in the UK, so obviously they're not going to ask me a history question. I don't know about the queens and the kings of England and all of that. So they asked, they asked their father, who, who's English, and he gave a very definitive answer. And so they went and then they came back to me the next day and they said, I got that question wrong. I asked daddy and daddy was so confident. And so I, I thought it was right, but it was wrong. And I was like, Yes, well, you should really double check for yourself. Daddy says things confidently, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's right. Mm -hmm. And so my daughters were learning that lesson very early on. But I think it's something we all have to keep in mind. Just because someone is saying something in a confident tone doesn't mean it's right.
1: All right. Thank you. Well, Constance, tell me any other key things you want to make sure to mention about making your voice heard before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things.
2: I think one of the most important things we need to understand about making your voice heard is that it's not just about dominating other people. It's not just about being heard. Like you have to have something to say. You have to have a reason why you're doing this. So what has helped me over the years as I said, I was very introverted before and had a lot of trouble making my voice heard. But what has helped me over the years is that I have a higher purpose in a way. I'm helping people learn. I'm helping people be better at what they do. And that's what drives me. So I think instead of just thinking, how do I get loud enough so everyone's going to hear me? You should be asking yourself, what do I want to say? And is it worth saying? Is it actually going to add to what's happening out there. The other thing I would say also is influence is a two-way street. So it's not just about trying to convince the other person that you're right. It's actually about getting to know the other person as well and being open to them, asking questions and finding out what their perspective is and having a two-way conversation.
1: All right. Thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring?
2: Yes. So there's a book by Khalil Gibran called The Prophet and there's a quote from that that says your pain is the breaking of the shell that holds your understanding and it took me a very long time to understand this but now that i've been through failure i've been through a lot of pain over the years i mean i'm i'm 55 so i've lived you know i've i've done a lot of things i now understand that when you go through a painful experience you're growing. And as a result, you actually get bigger. And I kind of think of it as it's kind of like a snake shedding its skin. So each time you grow through this painful experience, you kind of shed a skin, you're getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's how you grow, it's how you develop. And so when I look back on my life and the painful experiences I've had, I now no longer regret any of them. There was a time when I hated, you know, I was like, oh, why did I do that job? Why did I have to go through that? Why did I have that horrible boss? But now I'm like, you know what? I learned from that. And I'm better for it and I'm bigger for it.
1: All right, thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research?
2: I would actually say and this is a little bit controversial, the power poses study.
1: Oh yeah, Amy Cuddy.
2: Yeah, Amy Cuddy power poses. And it's only controversial because in her original research with her colleagues, what they found was that holding a power pose changes your hormones. It reduces cortisol, the stress hormone, and increases testosterone, makes you more confident. And other researchers that tried to replicate it did not find any effect on hormones. And so it became this big thing like, oh, you know, we can't replicate it. It's a false study. You should stop talking about it. However, what they did replicate was that people who held a power pose for two minutes, and a power pose is not something you do in front of other people. You know, you you kind of do it in the privacy of a bathroom or something. You do feel more confident as a result. And when they actually did things like they had people do a presentation, half of them did a power pose before the presentation and the other half didn't. And the people who were judging the presentations didn't know who had done a power pose, but they judged the presentations and the presentations that they found more engaging turned out to be the people who had done the power pose. Mm -hmm. So I actually think it's one of those things that it's so easy, a two minute power pose. Yeah, I do it before a big presentation when I'm really nervous. It's just one of those really easy, practical things that Yeah, that's what I love. I love those easy, practical things that you can just work into your day and it doesn't take much time.
1: Okay, thank you.
2: And a favorite book? The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. All right. It's a 12-week course in rediscovering your creativity. And it doesn't take much time. I did it while I was working at the Boston Consulting Group, actually. So I, I didn't have much time. But it took what, maybe half an hour a day and then maybe a couple hours on the weekend. But as a result of following that 12-week course chapter by chapter, it just kind of put me back in touch with, I don't know, the joy of being alive. kind of put me in touch with rediscovering, like noticing colors and nature and all of these things that I had kind of lost touch with.
1: Beautiful. Thank you. And a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job.
2: A favorite tool, I actually think, is, in my job, I lecture. So I'm using PowerPoint all the time, which I actually love PowerPoint if it's used properly, if you're not using it as a Word document, but you're actually using it for visuals and shapes and all of that. But PowerPoint has this notes function, which I really like using. The other favorite tool nowadays when I'm teaching online on Zoom, the polling function. Mm-hmm. I love polling. And I found I can really get students, especially my undergrads who normally won't. I've got like 200 to 300 undergrads in a lecture. In a lecture hall, they're not going to raise their hands. But if I give them a poll, it's anonymous and they'll answer. And I get to know them that way as well. So I love the polling function.
1: And a favorite nugget that you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks, that quote it back to you often.
2: One thing that my students have said they appreciate that I share is how much I used to struggle when I was younger with making my voice heard. And I often tell this story of when I was a teenager, I think I was about 15, when I was on vacation with my parents and we were in a hotel and my mother said, can you go downstairs and ask the front desk for a newspaper? And I was so stressed out by that. I was like, what? No, I can't. You, you want me to ask a stranger about what? What? No. And my students laugh when I talk about that, but I think they appreciate me kind of revealing how, how far I've come and how it is possible if you are painfully shy and introverted to evolve and to, to actually get your voice heard.
1: And if folks want to learn more, get in touch, where would you point them?
2: I have a website, ConsonLock.com, and that's Conson, C-O-N-N-S-O-N, C-O-N-N, because I was born in Connecticut, Mm L-O-C-K-E.com.
1: And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs?
2: You know what? I think one of the most important things is to take time for yourself, is to really not just take time for yourself, but to take time to get to know yourself and to really understand what are your priorities? What are your values? What do you find important in life? Because if you don't understand that, you can't bring your best self
1: to work. All right, Conson, this has been a treat. Thank you. And I wish you lots of luck in all the ways you make your voice heard. Thank you. I really appreciate Constance's perspective about that vocal variety and how it makes all the difference in the world in terms of you don't want to be monotone, but you also don't want to be mono-pace or mono-volume. And that is what makes a voice dynamic and interesting and compelling versus very easy to nod off to. So great tips from Constant. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesome at slash EP694. And I hope to catch you next time. And peace.